Hello and welcome to the Access of Space Defense and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space defense and security. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to episode 14, Espionage and Narrative Warfare. To understand this topic, we have today one of our returning guests from episode two, Dr. Ekaterina Matoi. And I would like to tell the audience that uh, uh, your favorite guest is back on this episode. I know a lot of people have been listening to her uh, episode two, and there were a lot of questions that were actually sent to me, which of course I tried to answer it uh, in best way possible from my perspective. But I thought uh, it would be again good to have uh, her on the podcast, and you know, uh, along with all your all of your questions uh, that would be answered, uh, I have tried to you know include the narrative warfare topic as well. Uh, so yeah, let's begin with the episode. Uh, welcome, uh, Ekaterina, back to the podcast. Uh, hello, Honkar. Thank you very much, and I'm honored to be back. Uh... And to share my humble knowledge with you and with our respectable listener. Thank you very much. So I think we'll uh, directly start with the uh, topic itself. And I think we have a lot of broad audience from space industry as well. So just to before we take a deep dive into the topic, can you tell us what is espionage? Wow, this is an excellent question. Um, we can start by uh, associating espionage with the attempt or action of obtaining otherwise not accessible information or pieces of information in person or using other individuals or technical means. This activity, is, this activity of espionage is directed to traditional targets, namely political and military intelligence fields, for example, to which actually have to add critical domains such as communication technologies, defense, scientific research, energy, aviation, electronics, IT, etc. Which it should be noted that uh, espionage is not only carried out for the benefit of state actors, but also for the benefit of private or mixed entities. And that spies are not only intelligence officers or agents trained as such, but also individuals recruited for the purpose of obtaining the desired information, as well as informants. Coming back, there are many definitions of what espionage is. Perhaps what should be remembered here is that espionage itself cannot have just a fixed definition, but a rather dynamic one as societies change. Technology evolves, individuals are becoming more creative. As for the information itself, not only classified, secret, top secret, information is targeted by espionage, but information that is normally not accessible to or not intended for a category of audience as well. Because, you know, the uses of information can be also, uh, can, be, can also be multiple. 
Besides assessments that may be determined actions or change course of actions, information processing, for example, and figuring out what they can lead to are parts of what we consider intelligence analysis. As a conclusion to this question, I would uh, like to point out that espionage is not uh, the MI6 movie, you know, or a CIA movie. <laughs> uh, I like, but yeah, uh, it has many yes. new meanings and implications yeah. nowadays as may require particular and contextual assessments on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, you know, for this detailed explanation. And I like the point that you mentioned about uh, that it's not a movie. Uh, the spy movies that we see, you know, those are like glamorous. Uh, but yeah, taking a little bit deep dive into the topic, uh, you mentioned about uh, things related to the corporate espionage as well. And we recently have seen some intelligence leak from the United States. So the recent US leaks have kind of amplified several negative narratives in media, in other conversations that people are having in the industry. Uh, and it has somewhat, you know, affected the U.S. security agencies as well, uh, the image of the CIA, I would say. So can you tell us how government generally uses narrative strategy to overcome such espionage cases or such situations in the espionage? Uh, the same. Uh, also, this question is uh, quite uh, complex. I mean, the answer to this question is complex one because uh, there are more more uh, than one question in one question. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not going to analyze. I'm I'm, got, I'm not going to refer to the uh, those narrative uh, negative narratives about the U.S. security agencies you have mentioned, but rather I'm going to insist on different sides of the topic because it is a challenging one. For example, I'd like to point out that the commentators associated the leaks issue with the leaking the information, not with gathering and processing this information leaked by other state actors interested in these leaks. This is already a brilliant diversion from a core development that will probably continue and may be carried out by other countries as well. In general, we have to keep this in mind, diversion and influence campaigns are instrumental in redirecting the target audience attention away from an issue that is not intended to be noticed, commented on, and consumed to something that has the potential to divert attention even for a short period of time as the leaks, these leaks, this period, uh, this episode, uh, the leaks episode uh, was, and this still is, is, is there in the background. However, going back to these leaks without pretending to be a fine connoisseur of such situations, I believe that there are at least a few aspects that must be considered before embracing the idea that indeed this young man, Jack Douglas, takes a year, I suppose, did the act of which he is accused. Why? First of all, we are yeah. talking about the age. He is only 21 years old. Yes. Uh, still, I think, it's my opinion, a subjective one, of course, and subjective, he's still immature in terms of the ability to realize the importance of such information leaks to do it. And on the other hand, I doubt the fact that he received clearance to access such information. Even he was assigned to an intelligence department and that he was uh, had excellent abilities in uh, IT. The second one, it's not, first one was the age. The second is his profession. He's a yes. US Air Force National Guard Airman, isn't it? Yes. He's not, he's not a mere bodyguard. Here I'm thinking no. about of the fact that there are some thorough checks for those that are choosing the Air Force path. 
from all points of view, physically, psychologically, not only for admission, as well as annually. Normally, I don't yes. know how, uh, how is the case in the, uh, the case of the United States Air Force, but in the case of other um, army, in the case of the Air Force, it's very difficult to access the pos a position in the Air Force, including when you are a young man and you have also, uh, I mean, uh, graduated from high school military, from a, a, a high school uh, college, military college. Going further, the motivation. So we have the age, the profession, and the motivation. So it was not also contractor. This is also important because United States Army, States Army is using contractors. The third, um, the third uh, aspect is the motivation that could have been behind the gesture, which did not really exist according to intelligence specialists. I was listening these days to different uh, specialists from, for example, was a lady from the MI5 a retired lady from the MR5, and she said, pointed the same. She said, "What is the mo I could I cannot find a motivation behind this gesture." Normally, we uh, and I'm coming back uh, when I'm thinking about motivation. I'm thinking about ideological motivation, uh, also uh, in the political and religious sphere. Maximum, we may, we may take into consideration you know, that um, age-specific kind of mindness when you're very young and you want to. Um, to impose yourself to just to show uh, who are you and uh, something you know sometimes between 18 to 20 something things like this people or young people may 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 uh, may uh, may have tendency to do so yes. still but here i would return back to the annual checks that the institution must carry them out and under its responsibility regarding reporting in case and so if they notice something, uh, some behavioral deficiencies, you know, if they notice or they observe this kind of uh, something that has changed in easy behavior, they have to report. And finally, he worked at an intelligence department, as far as I understand. In this yes. case, he benefited from specific training. And I, now I'm back to the motivation that was the basis for his enlist, enlistment in the field in which he was active at the time of the information leaks. Uh, of course, here I'm thinking about the Air Force again, and plus an intelligence department now at that point. Not every soldier is fit for the Air Force, like I said previously, let alone an intelligence department. Yes. Complementary aspects that intrigues me is the period from when the information started to flow, namely December 2022, and the moment he was arrested a few months later. April, isn't it? I think April uh, 2023. How is it possible that the American authorities or the American intelligence services that are excellent, I mean, they are among the top number one in the world, did not raise or any concerns about these ongoing leaks between 2000, uh, December 2022 and April 2023? Moreover, another thing that intrigues is the way in which this young man is now presented by the American authorities and consequently in different newspapers. He appears to be a troubled child with personality issues, who really wanted to stand out, who owns guns, who was known to make certain violent racist comments, etc. But going back to the leaks, what real matters beyond an apparent wrinkled image of the United States intelligence agencies, because you have mentioned image, is that these leaks, for me personally, were not a new thing 
for the moment they have been released. I mean, they have been published. Not because I had access to them in any case, yeah. uh, but because they had no intelligence value at the moment when they had they have been made public. And I think yeah. this is more important than what the, 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 if that boy leaked or not leaked those information. We can also ask ourselves whether this is the most negative narrative related to United States security agencies, or you just consider so because it is the last one we found out about. We can then ask ourselves if the United States security agencies' narratives are the most negative across the globe and how to distinguish between opposite narratives in the information or disinformation market. This is no excuse for any type of spying or subversive action. I'm just trying to point out that associating these leaks with definitive conclusions is rather difficult if they were true leaks. Yes. I think, yeah, I mean, this is not the first time there is a negative narrative. I still remember there was a virus that was developed called a Stuxnet. Uh, and it was deployed even before actually it was finally finished to actually spy or monitor or possibly take down the Iran's nuclear program. So, uh, but yeah, I, th I think they failed miser miserably actually in that and uh, the repercussions were actually seen later. So I think, yeah, this is not the first time actually we are seeing the negative narrative about the US security agencies. There have been past incidents, but I think, yeah, this this was something highlighted with, a, as you said, a individual who is, you know, uh, at a very young age uh, and doesn't have, you know, uh, prior extensive experience in the government fields so just to take a you know step back and uh, just to build on the answer as well that you mentioned so how do espionage activities affect the nation and its international relations in general uh, uh, there are um, more than one way in which espionage can affect the uh, targeted nation or international relations. Uh, this depends uh, on the type of asset affected, obtaining, for example, the codes of a water pumping station of a small village cannot be compared with the penetration of a military state server, isn't it? Uh, yes. This is the qualitative dimension of a potentially successful espionage act. From another perspective, if 100 water pumping stations are being hacked, and 100 electricity distribution stations at the same time, the quantitative aspect of espionage act comes into discussion. Of course, at a different level, at the international level, etc. Overcoming systematic penetrations requires a more holistic approach and highly trained, experienced personnel. Outcomes of espionage depend also on who carries them out. And in case they succeed, what instruments can the entities that succeeded deploy in order to take advantage of the situation? Because if you steal a secret of a certain kind, if and if you don't have the technology to use it, that makes the difference. And yeah. this is without even, I mean, this is, these are uh, aspects that must be taken into consideration. We are talking about uh, the experience a spionage act or espionage activities. It's very important who is doing it, for whom is for whom, and how it, uh, these uh, those information are used in, in which context, of course. All right. Okay. So I think as you have possibly mentioned quite a lot of things in this, and 
uh, I would like to just, you know, take a step a little bit ahead into the world we live in, that is the digital world, uh, where we have seen even a small social media post is enough to actually trigger violence among common citizens. So I just want to know in, from a general perspective of yours, so from your perspective, I would say, what measures are, uh, the government should take to reduce the entry of such, you know, violent narratives or the violence created, you know, by such activities in the civil domain? I um, Not quite a difficult uh, subject. Uh, difficult because, you know, uh, we cannot live anymore without social media. Yes. Uh, and we have to accept it as it is uh, with bad and good things. Good, yeah. Bad and good outcomes. Now, um, related to social media posts triggering violence within a society, we should uh, initially assume that these posts are a fact. Reducing the entry of messages by the government in a democratic society may require new laws, surveillance, and robust reinforcing processes. Hence, a complex yes. new set of tools to position this social protection policy in a correct light and avoid assessments like interventionism or poor freedom of expression. You have to imagine the state as an arbiter that does not act directly. Yes. Because the state can ask social media networks, network operators to enforce peaceful messaging to reward exemplary conduct and educate the users. Yes. Allowing companies to operate such databases is an immense privilege and they should rise to the level of this privilege and express their gratitude towards societies and governments by bringing a contribution towards all social values, not only peaceful posts. In fact, here we are talking about a different division of power between the state and the shareholders of such media entities. Considering the high degree of influence of social networks, I may even dare to argue that in many situations, social networks where they are not clearly regulated by the state are more influential than state officials per se, because their potential of forming, pub, uh, forming the public opinion potential. And the state can also support policies, if you are coming back to the state, that reward social groups in service of peaceful posts in various way, ways. Finally, it must be assessed whether certain parts of societies are more sensible to moderate levels of incitement than others. In this case, social media posts are just a trigger for a group that may resort to violence anyway, due to a reason or another. In this case, focusing only on posts or social media may just switch the pre-existing tendencies towards other directions, but will not limit violence. But given what is happening in various parts of the world, I believe that only a transparent partnership between the state and these media entities can prevent social networks from becoming channels for the transmission of violent messages or means of black or gray propaganda, Onkar. Yes. I think you rightly mentioned about this. And the reason I asked this question, because uh, the follow-up question that I'm going to ask is highly related to the same one. So we see that, you know, at, at par, the narrative warfare is playing a lot of uh, uh, role in the social media and in the communication in general among the people. And we have seen this play out in the Russia-Ukraine war from both the sides, 
from the west side as well and from the russian side as well we have seen the narratives clashing and you know people are falling for these narratives so from your perspective how does the intelligence community in general look or use the narrative uh, for their own benefit it's an excellent question onkar keeping that uh, the war in ukraine uh, keeping about the, if you're thinking about what's happening in sudan at this moment um yes it's very important to look at the narrative warfare now if i could speak on behalf of the intelligence community of one state or another involved in the conflict yeah. i would probably say that i was expecting this war of narratives between the parties to the conflict and, the, and that i have nothing else to do but think about how i can manage to impose my own narrative at the expense of the other side yes but, right um, if i'm if i could speak on behalf of the intelligence community on yes. one state or another uh, this is because since ancient times wars generate narratives stories that are meant to be accepted and or assimilated by the target audience what is changing over time are means used and the objectives of each narrative warfare returning to the conflict uh, from southeastern europe actions words or images in a nutshell media products uh, have been used and thought of as an essential part of a narrative of self-identification, justification, and defiance, obviously with some slight differences between the two main opposing camps. After all, narratives are the manipulation and representation of connected events, and the facts, actions of the current crisis means that narratives are likely to be constructed, adjusted, and even turned down with each passing day. Let's not forget, however, that any narrative, whether during peacetime or wartime, has, mars, has some sort of validity period or self-entropy, things that are well known to those behind campaigns promoting various narratives uh, and implicitly various interests. The most important thing is that the goal of each campaign is achieved. For example, the target audience must empathize, advocate a cause, disbelieve one thing or another, either demonize or venerate a person, and not least of all, to believe that this is a personal decision and not an imposed one. Because in the end, this is the scope of the uh, uh, narrative, even during the, 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 the war. Yes, I think we really appreciate your insights, you know, on this question. Uh, and as you mentioned, like, you know, narratives have like different applications and it's not only, I think, from my, uh, from where I see it, it's not only used for the intelligence or any other military-related strategy, but it also has a application to, you know, change the national or international course of certain nation. So to a little bit, you know, take a step back and I would like to know, like, if narrative is used as a strategic tool and especially if it is used by in the African and the Middle Eastern countries, will it change the course of the nation? Because we have seen, for an example, the way Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia has actually changed its course, uh, its international position. Like it has gone from, you know, being a fairly moderately conservative country to, uh, you know, a country which is now accepting the modern change. So what are your thoughts on this? 
So, uh, first of all, you mentioned uh, the narrative is diff if this if narrative is used as a strategic tool by the African and Middle Eastern countries. Now, Omkar, I don't think uh, African or Middle Eastern countries need a strategic narrative to position themselves towards the West or the East, as history is the best narrative for African or West Asian people. Yes, yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, for some great powers, history cannot be rewritten. However, hard some may wish to do so. Moreover, yes. there are unhealed scars that have been carried over from one generation to the next and passed down with specific narratives among the African peoples or those from the Arabian Peninsula in regard to the West or to the colonial powers. If you consider the narrative to be a soft power tool, then yes, this has the potential to change history but there are limitations and limits. If the West decides to respond exclusively with soft power tools, please note exclusively, the potential of Africa and Middle Eastern countries' soft power tools to be successful will increase. Indeed, Saudi Arabia is slowly opening its door to worldwide investments and it's changing its approach. It's like it's changing its, uh, its appearance, but you know, it had international business before, before uh, 2017 approximately, let's say so. Furthermore, Saudi Arabia is opening towards business with Iran and Asia as well. I mean, here I'm thinking about East Asia and is already a very rich country. It is yes. this, the wish of Saudi Arabia to position itself vis-a-vis -vis the globe. From another perspective, the West is not homogeneous culture and no country in the world is able to make everybody else happy. Saudi Arabia will probably become more attractive for some Western countries and not yes. that attractive for others. Probably the most important for Saudi Arabia will be to achieve the level of cooperation they desire, the speed of economic growth that suits them the best, and long-term economic stability as any country is wishing, is looking for. It's in a state actor, and uh, as an estate actor, always they are thinking this way, normally. And uh, to conclude my answer for this question, as I already said, the history between Africa and Middle Eastern countries, Africa and Middle Eastern countries and the West, some eras have been already written, unfortunately for the collective West. It is up now to all parties to write new chapters, this time from equal to equal, at least this time. History cannot be taken back indeed, but may help on how to think about the future. Yes. I think this is a very important point you mentioned about the history. And I think uh, coming from Asia, uh, especially South Asia, I believe uh, uh, the position in which like India is at the moment or even Japan or South Korea, I think uh, the, these countries have a kind of, you know, they have, they have used especially history as a tool to, you know, set up or build up the future. Uh, in the international community uh, and as we are speaking about you know uh, the civilian domain because till now I think we have discussed the points from the point of view of in intelligence defense industry experts as well uh, so I'd like to know from you know the common citizens perspective so how do different narratives affect common citizen and why is it important to educate people these days about the narrative strategy 
how have these narratives, uh, different narratives affect common citizens and uh, why it is important to educate people, you know? It's important to educate people for all reasons, all possible reasons. Still, uh, as previously discussed, this is a difficult question. Does the government want its population to reject narratives or reject only some narratives? Because the answer is with the government because he's coming with regulations. If then, which ones are the good one? I mean, I'm thinking about narratives. And which ones damage citizens' interests, keeping, considering, keeping in mind the education level of the population in terms of influencing communication? This answer has a very complication and goes to the core values of societies. My opinion is that the answer, like I said a uh, few seconds ago, is in education, be it formal or informal, through schools or state policies. A strong formal education system is a pillar that can help people to assess narratives more realistically. But yes. this will not be the only benefit if we are we insist to educate people. The general, in general, people negatively affected by narratives may be affected by other factors as well. And the most efficient manner to address this issue may be to employ a more holistic approach. Shortly put it, I think that the answer lies in a number of factors that in combination can lead to a better positioning of the user or of the consumer of those narratives towards media products, for example, that are delivered via social networks or uh, television or radio station. On the one hand, we are talking about education, like I said. Here I'm thinking uh, not only formal, provide, formal education provided in school, but also of various campaigns initiated that may be initiated by non-governmental organization, and especially of those regulations coming from the state that must be respected by the owners of uh, those channels that may influence or they may they um, they are promoting different narratives once again i'm thinking about the the media yes i think uh, as you mentioned media the media narrative is very important and i think uh, i personally think that people should actually you know look at different narratives and then form a constructive opinion rather than you know, just falling for one narrative and... Uh, if I, if I may, Monkar. Yes, 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 yeah. Proceed idea. Yeah. Excuse me. Uh, if I may, uh, you said that people may... Uh, that people have to compare the, the narratives. There are, including democratic societies, when people, where people have no possibility to compare the narratives. You see, that's, that's a big issue of our times. Yes. If, if our governments are, um, uh, we are talking about censorship. Yes. If some outlets of some uh, states are censored by the states, yes. how can you compare? How is possible to compare the narratives? Yes, yeah, that that is true as well. I think things boil down to the government policies also as well. Then. <laughs> Yeah. yeah this, is, uh, this is very important. Please, please. Yes. yes, yes, definitely. I think we are uh, almost reaching the end of the episode. Uh, so I think lastly, I would like to ask you, uh, you know, in general, because our audience, you have been one of the favorite speakers. 
of our audience uh, because your episode received almost more than 400 downloads and so you know this is for the audience the question is for the audience uh, for their benefit i would say so what message would you like to give our audience about the consumption of narratives and opinions coming out of uh, you know uh, kind of i would say as we said like comparing narratives and then forming the, your own opinion so in such a way what recommendation would you give to them when they are looking at media or possibly any espionage news or any defense industry news so what message would you like to give our audience thank you for this opportunity uh, i do really believe that not all narratives are harmful or designed to harm the targeted audience some are designed to mobilize people for a good cause designed to support the common good as such, I certainly cannot encourage listeners to disregard entirely the narratives that are promoted in the public space. Still, I would draw attention also that out there, even at the moment we are having this discussion, a PR team may release a narrative meant to promote and implement an agenda which is meant to damage our societies on short, medium, or long term. But I myself do believe that humanity is kind in its essence. As such, I would certainly encourage those who are interested to promote, to engage with or support certain narratives to, to do so if they are easily verifiable, transparent, and have a clear objective designed to do good for society. In the end, we have to understand that our decisions are building responsibilities. As such, we are responsible for making our tomorrow society. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Katrina, for you know providing such valuable insights. I'm pretty sure our audience are still going to shoot up with a lot of questions uh, on my direct message. <laughs> and I hope uh, later in the future as well, uh, we can create some more episodes. Uh, by the way, we'll be completing one year of the podcast uh, on 16th May. So I think it is almost close to a year that uh, after that you have you know come uh, come on the podcast and uh, I'm really thankful to you uh, for, you know, uh, taking up this invite and quickly responding to the questions as well. And we hope to create uh, some episodes in the future as well with you. Thank you very much, Katrina. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you find our podcast insightful, then please like, share and subscribe. See you in the next episode. Thank you.